Hello, this is Dr. Jeff Eden. I'm a PharmD, a doctor of pharmacy. I'm owner and managing editor of paindoctor.com and a pain blog. I'm also adjunct associate professor at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, as well as Western New England University College of Pharmacy. I am a clinical pharmacy specialist at a VA hospital in upstate New York and director of that residency program. Also, I am editor at large of practical pain management and a senior editor for pain medicine. And I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast again, and happy to be here today. My biggest pet peeve is about cannabinoids. I actually have a couple of them. The first pet peeve is that there are people that are basically advertising the use of cannabinoids for pretty much everything with limited evidence. My second pet peeve is that there are a number of chronic pain patients who do require chronic opioid therapy and, of course, are required to do urine drug screens. So the second pet peeve is that there are a lot of people that are obtaining cannabidiol products with the belief that they are pure and they do not contain any THC, then they go for a urine screen and the urine screen comes back positive for cannabinoids. And the patient's opioids are either stopped abruptly or they're tapered and the patient now has a note in their chart that they have a substance abuse problem. Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth. Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the most famous small town in the world, it's time for your weekly dose, baby. Skepticism, truth-seeking, clarity, all of that is what we bring to the table here. Today's feature conversation is Dr. Jeff Feuden, pharmacist and pain management expert. Yes, Jeff is back to visit and excited to talk today. So you may have heard his last episode, we talked about the opioid crisis, and if you haven't heard it, you should go listen because it was really great. We picked the part, the mess, and we assigned blame pretty much to everybody. And we try to make sense of it all, but it is a big mess. What, he had lots of great revelations about what's real and what's not really the opioid crisis. So I definitely recommend you go check that out. Today's special segment after the interview is very unique to Jeff. So it's not just me rambling on. In fact, I'm not going to talk. I'm let him going to talk. He's going to tell his story of being a whistleblower in a major federal health care fraud case. So stick around to hear that. Very great story to hear. And it's awesome that Jeff would share it with us. But today we're going to talk about pain management and not just with Jeff, but with you. I haven't forgot about your New Year's resolution. We're a few weeks in here. How's it going? Have you stayed away from the sweets? It's pretty rough for me. I'm going to be quite honest with you. Have your cold sweats stopped? Are the hunger pangs over? Are you used to your new 2020 diet? Or did you give up already? You know, no big deal from, from my side of the table. No, uh, you know, no judgment. I think all we can hope to do here is to help people not get caught up in this year's gimmicks. You know, I would say that if last year's gimmick diet worked, we wouldn't need this year's gimmick diet. So just always remember that if I'm really successful here, I can help you implement a strategy that takes little mental energy to, you know, to actually implement. So, so it does stick. Um, I think that's the big hurdle is that some of these plans take so much time and energy. It's very difficult to do. So, you know, least resistant path is most important. 
I actually did a recent blog article that talked about just 60 minutes to change your life. So I think you should check that one out. It's at woodstockvitamins.com slash 60 spelled out S-I-X-T-Y. The biggest thing about that is that I actually did some workouts and we turned them into little GIFs, like, you know, videos, moving pictures, and uh, they're kind of silly. So check that out. You know what's worse for me when we're dealing with all of this New Year's stuff? It's the weekend. I can be great and disciplined all week long. I'm doing my work, you know, working a full day. Pretty much everybody's out of the house. But as soon as we all touch down with all of our young kids and our big family and friends, you know, I'm a lucky dude, I'll say that. But everyone wants to get together and they want to eat like crap and have a few cocktails. So it's always like all of my discipline goes out the window there. So it's like I have to starve myself every morning to make sure that I'm okay to eat the calories that end up being taken in at those later parties. Now, you know, I've been trying to tell people I'm, I'm on Instagram now, you know, I'm trying not to look swollen. I don't want to use those filters, uh, maybe just to fill in my hairline. I, I don't know, but, uh, I've got no willpower and it is very difficult. I think it's important to know that, you know, I walk the walk, I do the healthful stuff, but it isn't easy. And anybody that makes it seem easy to you is just straight up lying. Most of us don't have the discipline. I guess we don't have the energy with our busy lives to do this as well as it seems in social media and in the media. Uh, Very, very rare. So speaking of rare, in my conversations with people around their wellness for the new year, I've done quite a few consults in the first few weeks here. The idea of the uniqueness factor has been coming up a lot. And basically a lot of money is being spent on marketing to teach people that the path to wellness is only via this uber-customized approach. So much so that they recommend DNA testing for supplements, right? You do a a swab or whatever, and you send it in, and they say, you need omega-3 because this is your genetics, you need this, you need that. And, you know, my head kind of explodes. So I'm going to have a geneticist on the podcast to talk about this in the future, and, you know, It's everywhere because Dr. Jeff Feuden and I, today's guest, we got into it because he talks about the benefits of genetic testing. So I think it's really, really great that it's available and it's a tool and that's what we talk about, but we have to be super careful. So my opinion is, yeah, when it comes to your wellness plan and your health, we are all different. We have different experiences, genetic makeup, uh, habits, trends, tastes, all of that, right? We're different, but we're also very much the same. You know, we're, we're essentially the same meat bag with little variations. We can fit into these different bins, right? So I believe that the pursuit of this totally customized experience that they're trying to sell us now really gets in the way or completely avoids the better and easier path, right? At the core, there are general steps we all can and should execute on in a consistent manner. And once we've established the more important piece to our wellness journey, better habits, then we can start to get into a much more customized regimen for, you know, for us, what's working, what's not. So, you know, my take home here is don't worry about whether you need these rare berries that are rich in whatever chemical a genetic test told you you're deficient in due to your ancestry, you know, like whatever that is. Instead, focus on eating fruits and vegetables just generally, right? Then you can move into the more advanced stuff. So again, more on this on our rants, future episodes, and we're going to talk about it today. So let's just dive right in and talk about pain with Dr. Jeffrey Feuden. 
Jeff, let's start with a concept of of I have pain. <laughs> We're going to go real far back. So what's what's pain and what are people really experiencing? And And is your pain the same as my pain? So pain is different for different people. Um, I mean, chemically, uh, there's a lot that's going on in the body, and we're still learning a lot about pain. There's there's glial cells that are responsible for causing all sorts of pain, uh, neuropathic pain, other sorts of pain. Uh, there's, of course, GABA receptors. Uh, they're involved with, with pain. Uh, there's, all, there's the villanoid receptors. They're involved mostly with neuropathic pain. And then, of course, there's the nerves themselves, which really are like electrical wires, mm-hmm. right? So with an electrical wire, we have a positive and negative charge. And it's the same thing in, in nerves. We have we have positive charges with sodium, negative with chlorine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same. It's really like a, a wired system. So it's physiologically, it's very, very complex. And besides the complexity, the physiological complexity, there's also a behavior health complexity uh, and a mental health complexity, and it has to do with socioeconomic upbringing. Uh, it has to be how people respond to pain, how stoic they are. Um, it has to do with comorbid conditions like depression and PTSD. So it is very, very complex. And no, not every patient is the same. And even if every patient was the same physiologically and mentally, then we've got the genetic variability among patients. You know, how, how, how they have, how the receptor makeup is how their chemicals break down, and uh, it's just very complex. Yeah, it, obviously it's very complex. Most people's pain is way uh, tolerated way better than my pain. Uh, I am a very big wuss, so I respond <laughs> very quickly to pain. Um, the You mentioned something that we're going to like just do a little tangent on because this is a big topic for uh, the New Year's, it seems, with all these conversations I'm having with lots of people. The idea of... Uh, genetic related customizations of therapies so so how does genetics play into um pain management i guess well you know what i'm going to answer that story by by sharing a case with you do it that okay yeah of all course. right i want their name their address social security number <laughs> yeah everything, right? violate everything all you have to do is say hipaa three times and you're cool oh really oh, good <laughs> that's good so this was a patient um i believe he was in his 50s he had chronic back pain he had some burning pain in his legs. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of uh, mental health issues. He had PTSD, he had anxiety disorder, and he had ADHD, mm-hmm. for which he was receiving like four or five medications. He also was receiving uh, morphine. He'd been tried on a whole bunch of different antidepressants. He had been tried on tramadol. Um, so uh, I took a look at the medications that this patient was on a- across many different um, purposes. So in other words, I looked at his ADHD stuff. I looked at his, he'd been at Tramadol one time. He'd been Venlafaxine at one time. I'm looking at these drugs and, and then I'm, I'm asking him about the side effects, whether he responded, whether he didn't respond. And it became very clear to me uh, that, that this guy um, was a poor CYP2D6 metabolizer. So in, in, in other words, right, he's not, he's not converting Tramadol to its active form, which requires 2D6. Mm-hmm. He didn't respond to codeine. Well, that requires CYP2D6 to be converted to morphine. Mm-hmm. So he had side effects with venlafaxine, which is typical in patients who can't convert venlafaxine to uh, desmethylvenlafaxine. So I'm like, okay, CYP2D6 is a problem. What else is a problem? So what I did is I ordered genetic testing uh, on, on 2D6 and some of his other enzymes, but I also ordered something called MTHFR and a, a COMT. 
So MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, is responsible uh, in humans for converting folic acid, which we can't use. Uh, so the body generally converts folic acid to folinic acid, and we use that, and it's important in nerve pathways. Uh, so he had he had uh, a deficiency in, in um, MTHFR, so he couldn't really convert it. So then I knew right then it didn't matter what antidepressant he was going to receive, he he wouldn't they wouldn't work for him because he didn't have he he couldn't make folinic acid. So that's an easy fix. Um, we we just either supplement with methylfolate, which is a natural food product, um, or we can give leucovorin, which is folinic acid, but of course it, that depletes zinc. So we chose to do that. I gave him a zinc supplement. So COMT, catechol-O-methyltransferase, he was a hyperexpressor of that. And that enzyme is responsible for breaking down neuroamines like dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. So no wonder why he was depressed. So anyway, um, we ended up giving him leucovorn uh, and zinc replacement. Uh, he did great. We tapered his morphine. Um, he ended up coming off of all the drugs for ADHD, anxiety disorder, uh, and depression. Um, and eight months into therapy, all he was taking was PRN naproxen. That's oh. it. Mm. Pain was controlled. His mental health was controlled. Happy camper. Okay, so you've just kicked open a big can of worms, actually. So this is uh, this is good. We're gonna we're gonna dive in a little bit. So there in the supplement industry, this MTHFR thing, of course, you and I both know the scientific relevance to all of this stuff and when when it's appropriate to look at this and when it's appropriate to assign blame. But in the natural products industry, we have people using the MTHFR um, and the ability to test for it at home as an exploitation method. All of your problems are due to your MTHFR deficiency. So actually, I have, right. a, I have a geneticist coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks, and we're going to be talking about that concept and that idea. So do you think, and this is just you know speculation, professional opinion, do you think that we should be doing genetic testing of people day one, or it, does it make most sense to reserve genetic testing for those refractory patients that aren't getting... Um, results from the more like broad scope, broad sweeping moves that, you know, are established by the data and such. All right. Well, I'm going to give you two answers. I I'm going to tell you what I do now. Yes. And then I'm going to tell you what I think should be done. Yep. So, so I don't order genetic testing in all of my patients because there's an expense to it. It's not that expensive. It's usually between 300 and $500. I don't order it on all my patients because pharmacologically, we can usually figure out what's going on. As I mentioned earlier on, just looking at the drugs, I knew that certain CYP enzymes were a problem, but there's no way I could predict COMT and MTHFR. So I don't do it routinely. I only do it if I'm stumped. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we need the verification of what's going on because then I can hone in on which are the best drugs or drug combinations for the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side of that, Okay, so what? It costs $500. What if a patient has depression and they have a legitimate trial of an antidepressant, which could require three months, right? Because you should wait at least four to six weeks before you increase the dose, right? Or three to six weeks, depending on who you speak to. And so they're on an antidepressant. You raise the dose three to six weeks later. It doesn't work. You raise the dose again. Then you say, okay, this isn't working. Let's try another antidepressant. This can go on for, for years, mm -hmm. right? Multiple ER visits, multiple visits to the psychologist, to psychiatry. Whereas really, if you just paid the lousy $500 for a test, mm -hmm. we could have honed in on the correct therapy right from the beginning. Right. So you believe that the 
in like the receptor theory. So essentially that, I guess, let me say it like this. So when people hear genetic testing, they think that you're getting some code, you're getting something unlocked. And so when you're saying genetic testing, though, you're saying that you're testing the, uh, are you, you're just testing the ability of his enzymes to work their activity level. Right, right. Right. So I'm not, I'm not testing things like, you know, is this person going to be prone to cancer? Do they have some weird thing going on? Do they have a, a bleeding disorder? I'm not testing any of that. The only thing, the only th items that I'm testing are the cytochrome enzymes, which are responsible for metabolizing drugs mm -hmm. or toxins in the body. Mm -hmm. So is the person a hyper expressor of, of each of the enzymes? Are they a or expression of those enzymes? Mm -hmm. Are they what we call an extensive metabolizer, which means that they're normal? So that's what I want to know. It's very, very specific to enzymes that are responsible for breaking down drugs. And then there's a couple of other enzymes that I'm looking at. I'm looking at enzymes that are responsible for breaking down neuroamines, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine in the myoneural junction. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking for that. Um, and I'm looking for the enzyme, as I mentioned, MTHFR, which is responsible for converting uh, uh, folic acid to uh, to um, folinic acid. So I'm looking at very specific things. It doesn't tell me anything about if this person's prone to a disease, if their family's prone to a disease, if they have some kind of weird thing that can affect their life insurance. Nothing to do with that. Nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So that you know that that's very important. Now when we talk about mental health versus pain, um, it, it's kind of a bonus because the, a lot of the drugs that are almost all of the drugs that are used for mental health, the antidepressants, the antipsychotics, not, not, not all of them, um, are go through the same metabolic system in the liver that, that various pain medications do, like if we're talking about opioids, for example. Cannabinoids go through that system as well. So we could select a different, a different option. So let's, let, let's say that we're talking about uh, giving a patient SSRI for depression. Mm -hmm. And I now know that this person is a poor expressor of, of, of 2D6 mm -hmm. um, and they're not going to convert the drug to the active form. I may decide to, to select then an SSRI that goes through a completely different enzyme. Instead of going through CYP2D6, one that goes through, let's say, CYP1A2. So for instance, a fluvoxamine or Luvox, mm -hmm. that, that drug only depends on 1A2, whereas most of the others are 2D6 or 3A4. So, I mean, it all sounds complicated to somebody that's listening and not, you know, not familiar with all these enzymes, but I basically use it to guide therapy to select the best drug for the patient without screwing around. Right. And so I would say that all of this is great. So what I, when I was a consultant pharmacist, our job was to say, let's get the drug that's most appropriate for this elderly patient. So we don't want drugs that get all these crazy metabolites and they stay in your body and they hang around forever. And then they're metabolized by the enzymes that other drugs are working on and all the drug interaction type stuff. And so what you're saying is, is that this allows a more refined approach. So we're not throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks. Um, we're going to say, okay, for this patient, it would be unwise of us to use these types of drugs because they're probably either going to metabolize it too much or metabolize it not enough. And then it's, you know, the levels are going to be goofed. But right. the, the one thing that I want to add in here in this conversation is that still doesn't mean that whatever drug is picked for that doesn't go down that enzyme path doesn't mean that that's going to work either. Right. That is correct. I mean, and, you know, not only we're trying to narrow down our selection of drugs and we can't guarantee that any of them are going to work, but we, we also want to select the safest alternative 
Uh, so here's right. a, a good example. So soma or carisoprodol is metabolized by 2C19 to to uh, meprobamate, which is a very dangerous, yes, a very dangerous sedative hypnotic. If a patient is an ultra rapid uh, 2C19 um, uh, metabolizer genetically, then they're going to rapidly metabolize the soma to meprobamate, and that's really dangerous. Right. By by you know, and, and we can make the same argument with drug interactions. So you know, let's say the patient is on a 2C19 inhibitor, right? Whatever, you know, whatever one they're on, amiodarone, mm -hmm. whatever they're on, mm -hmm. um, and they're bopping along on some, and they're doing fine, and all of a sudden that other drug is stopped, and genetically this patient is a hypermetabolizer. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's not being blocked anymore. The patient could die. Right. Right. So, so, so it's a safety. Not only is it to select the best therapy, mm -hmm. it's also a safety issue in, in drug selection. Yeah. Here's what people need to know about this is that there is a lot of promise with the idea of genetic testing to determine how you're going to handle um, different pharmaceutical agents. It makes our job as clinical pharmacists way easier, you know, like right. way easier. It, it solves a lot of problems. It, it solves a lot of headache for you and a lot of frustration. So we can make smarter selections. The the piece that's missing uh, in the charlatans conversation is that that doesn't mean that that's going to then work for you. We still have to do the journey. We still have to do the work and see because we're talking about when it comes to depression, it's complex human emotion. In your particular case, that gentleman happened to <laughs> respond very well to your first interventions after that. You know, So you took that knowledge and it worked. It could have been a case where it didn't work and we still had to go down the path and try different agents and all of this other stuff. And so when MTHFR is always presented to me, there's just one dude that's out there promoting it. He's not a doctor and he's been on record saying that MTHFR is... Uh, is his his way to make a million dollar enterprise that kind of a thing and and everybody's using it and they're using it incorrectly they're actually using it instead of all of the other strategic things that we should do so okay so you're not producing enough folinic acid uh tetrahydrofolate all of that fun stuff none of that's being made and that's the reason that you have all these problems so don't worry about <laughs> your diet or or sleeping or anything else just make sure you take the l-methylfolate supplement that's now like 30 dollars more expensive than you know my other folate supplements that have been around forever, you know, that kind of thing. So we have yeah. those charlatan tricks that are out there. So I, you know, again, the people need to understand that this is a part of a comprehensive program. And, you know, again, you're right. If it's just 500 bucks and we have a, a complex case or somebody dealing with something serious, depression, anxiety, PTSD, we want that information as soon as humanly possible. And hopefully it'll be cheaper right. someday, you know? Right. And, you know, and, be, and besides all that, mm -hmm. put the drugs aside for a minute. If you have a person with depression, mm -hmm. they, most patients do extremely well, as well or better with cognitive behavior therapy. Yes. So, you, you know, maybe they, don't need any, maybe they don't need any drugs. No drugs, right. Or, it, you know, as a crutch, all of, all of that stuff needs to be kind of unpacked and everything. But, you know, the idea of genetic testing and we're all different and it's very true. Uh, we're not all individually different. We're, we have all of our different experiences. But when it comes to the meat bags that we are, there's bins that we can all fit into, you know, and, right. and, and we can then customize therapy. But in general, there's still the the basic healthy things that we need to do. So I'm glad that we took this tangent and it was really good to hear how a legitimate practitioner is using this in day-to-day -day use because we hear so much of the other side of it, you know? And, sure. and you know, we'll have the genetics nerds on and we'll talk about the, the details in the future. But yeah, that, that's the gig. So, so we were talking about the different types of pain. Um, so, you know, you had mentioned neuropathy and neuropathy ends up being a big conversation point counterside because 
people are so frustrated. Neuropathy is very difficult to manage, they, they feel. And um, as a result, they, they try anything. They'll come into the pharmacy. Do you have anything natural? Do you have anything topical? So can we talk about neuropathies and like different management techniques for neuropathies and some causes? Like, Just give us a good overview of it. Sure. So um, as I said earlier, uh, I mean, um, the, the cause of neuropathy is kind of like a broken wire. I mean, to put it simply, mm-hmm. I used to think about a wire. So if a wire is, is nicked, the, the covering, the sheath on the wire is, is nicked, the plastic portion, that's, that's the equivalent of having the, the, um, the myelin sheath on a nerve nicked. Right. Part of it's not, you know, part of it's either degenerating or somehow got, got destroyed mm-hmm. or, Something's happening with the electrical system. The the uh, sodiums are not lined up to the chlorines, and they're not flip flopping back and forth down the nerve, similar to what we have in in a copper wire. Right. So so you know just to kind of understand knot can- concept is important. Well, um, once you understand knot concept, then we start looking for various therapies. Mm-hmm. And so um, opioids are not the first choice really for for any therapies, but even more particularly for neuropathic pain. Now, there are certain opioids that work for neuropathic pain, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But the kinds of therapies that we want to give are therapies that have some kind of activity in that, in or around that nerve. Mm-hmm. Anticonvulsants mm-hmm. Um, work very well uh, to, to um, sort of align the, the positive and negatively charged ions within a nerve. Like lidocaine, for example, that's mm-hmm. you know lidocaine is an anesthetic, mm-hmm. and that also affects affects the, the nerves and blocks them. But think about anticonvulsants when you have multiple electrical charges going on in your brain at the same time. That's in simple terms what causes a seizure right. because you, you've got all this firing of nerves. And so, what the anticonvulsants do is help align the various um, chemicals in those nerves. Uh, and normalize them so you don't have this this crazy firing nerve or crazy firing wire. You know, if we want to compare it to that, and they do it in different ways. So some some of the um, uh, antirhythmics are are used for this as well. And antirhythmics they work in the heart, right? And the way they work in the heart is they affect the nerves in the heart because the the, the firing of the nerve in, in the heart makes the muscle contract, and you've got let's say you know uh, a tachycardia. Science, tachycardia, whatever. Um, so all of these drugs uh, do do work, but not every drug works for every person. And sometimes you need to use them in combination yeah. because they work in different places. So let's use the gabapentinoids, for example. That's my next question is about gabapentin. Before we go ahead, the listeners should understand that you know you're using terms anticonvulsants, antirhythmic, and a lot of people take those labels very seriously, and they're like, well, I'm not an epileptic, so I shouldn't use anti-epileptic drugs. You know, most pharmacists, most, you know, the, the drugs themselves, they don't care about what those labels are. Those labels are just kind of bins that to help people understand, you know, right. generalized things. So don't, don't assign any value to those labels. Drugs don't know what they do. All they do is do what they do and that's it. So we can find drugs across different spectrums of like organ systems that may be beneficial here for different reasons. So I just kind of wanted to throw that. I always like to yeah. teach people that, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm going to make it easy for our listeners mm-hmm. because this is something we're all familiar with. So if a person has a, a cardiac event, mm-hmm. they may get in an ambulance and they may be injected with intravenous lidocaine, right? Because that normalizes the heartbeat, right? But almost everybody that's listening probably one time or another has had lidocaine injected into their gum mm-hmm. to have a, a cavity filled. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right? Mm-hmm. So yes, it's an antirhythmic, 
on the one hand, it, you know, it prevents irregular heartbeats, but it also blocks the nerves locally. Right. You're right. I mean, these, these drugs are they're really just labels that can be used multiple different ways as, as can antidepressants. And I'll get to that, but let's, so let's start with the gabapentin, right? It's gabapentin and pregambling. Um, what they do is they affect alpha two delta subunit receptors, which sounds like a big complex name. Uh, but, <laughs> whatever. But but yeah, right. Whatever. So basically, it's a receptor. Um, there's like a channel that goes into the nerve, uh, and pregabalin and gabapentin both land on that receptor, and they close up that channel. Well, what happens under normal circumstances is that calcium comes flying out of that channel. And, and when the calcium comes out in massive amounts, more than it should come out, it stimulates another chemical called glutamate. And then the nerve has like hyper firing. Mm -hmm. And so by giving like pregabalin, it lands on that receptor. It closes the channel and less calcium comes out and it, and it slows down a hot nerve. So that's one example, right? That happens on the synaptic cleft at the end of, of the nerve. Um, we have things like antiarrhythmics, which I talked about earlier which actually align the positive negative charges along the axon and also within the nerve. So you can use them in combination. Then the other thing we have is that those people listening that remember some of their general biology, we have the synapse, right? And this is where the space between two nerves and that space has to somehow connect. The items that connect those are the neuroamines, things like norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine. Norepinephrine turns out to be probably the most important of the three for nerve conduction. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, the antidepressants basically increase the amount of norepinephrine, serotonin, and or dopamine in that synapse. And so they can normalize the conduction between two nerves across the synapse. So the kinds of antidepressants that work best to treat neuropathic pain are those that affect norepinephrine. Do you want to give people some examples of those so they can? Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that one of the most popular examples is some Cymbalta or Duloxetine. Mm -hmm. That's an SNRI, but not only does it increase norepinephrine, it also increases serotonin. And I mm -hmm. want to make it clear to listeners that when I say increase norepinephrine, it does not do that in the blood systemically. Yeah. So some people think, oh my God, you know, it increases norepinephrine. I'm going to start having palpitations. Yes. No, it's within the nerve, mm -hmm. right? So, so Cymbalta is one example of duloxetine. Um, Effexor or venlafaxine, generic name venlafaxine is another example. Um, uh, Milnocipran or Civella is another example. Yep. So there, there's, you know, quite a few of them. Pestique um, is another example, and that one blocks only the uptake of norepinephrine. And this kind of leads into um, another important point. I said earlier that there are certain opioids that seem to work better for neuropathic pain than others because opioids generally don't work well for neuropathic pain. So having just discussed the, uh, the antidepressants, let's look at some of the opioids that actually have a similar mechanism. So one of them is methadone. Methadone for certain is a very powerful opiate analgesics, but, but, it, but in addition to its opiate activity, it also blocks reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin. So it increases norepinephrine. Uh, in addition to that, it blocks another receptor that's found in nerves called um, NMDA and methyldeaspartase. So methadone blocks NMDA, which helps with neuropathic pain. It also increases norepinephrine in the myelinor junction, and it's an opiate. There's another drug called levorphanol, mm -hmm. which also does that. Um, tramadol blocks reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin, and 
uh, I would posit that that, that the analgesic effect of tramadol uh, is probably mostly from the norepinephrine activity, not from its weak opiate activity. Yeah. And um, the other one that's an excellent drug for neuropathic pain and, and actually has the FDA approval for it is Nucinta or Tepentadol. And that one is in the same chemical class as Tramadol, but it's a much cleaner drug in terms of the way it's metabolized. It has a much, much higher affinity and potency for the mu receptor. So as an opioid, it's really a real opioid. It's, it you know, has good activity and it blocks reuptake of norepinephrine and norepinephrine alone. Right. And it does not go through the SIP system. So it, has, it really has no drug interactions. So neuropathy aside, I hope the one thing that listeners are taking away from this is the idea that when it comes to selecting drugs, it isn't just, oh, my doctor's just giving me drugs. There is quite a bit of thought that is internalized by experts. Uh, and there are so many experts out there that know how to navigate this complex system, this very complex system. So the idea of neuropathy, we think neuropathy is one thing. It is a very complicated system with lots of different options and things that, that could potentially work. And it's not going to be as simple as I just start something and I feel better, you know, especially yeah, well, with neuropathy. You yeah, know, no, uh, unfortunately, Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes prescribers will say, you know, we'll try this. Right. And, and you know, not, not, that, not that they're trying the wrong thing. Right. Not a lot of thought goes into it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I suppose that that's okay. Everybody doesn't need a specialist. But if, it, if a patient doesn't respond, they really should seek out a practice that has access to somebody who has expertise in pain pharmacotherapy because it, like, like you said it is very very complex right i mean if your tires keep going out of a line alignment i think it's stop time to stop going to jiffy loop you know yeah, it's right. time to step <laughs> up and go to like a, a real mechanic that you can trust and, and such and that goes with everything so it's not the, the whole conventional medicine is failing it's just there's jerks everywhere you know and there's there's people that are just kind of phoning in their day so it's about finding that relationship going to that that expert and and there are great doctors that are trying their best with the tools that they have but they don't have a jeff you know they don't have you know this expertise so we're talking about all the potential positives, but when people go on neuropathy therapies, you know, a lot of people come to the community pharmacies or they come to their supplement people and they say, I don't feel good. You know, uh, my neuropathy is going away. It's not a hundred percent. I don't feel good is, uh, you know, is there any way I can get off of these medications or at least feel good? So, you know, let's talk about the idea of what these, these drugs can do to you, like from a side effect perspective and, and what to expect and, and what is okay and what isn't, you know? Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's another whole can of worms, right? <laughs> Don't go too so, nuts, but <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's let's say that you have a, a patient uh, that you put on, or the doctor put the patient on, let's say, uh, uh, venlafaxine mm -hmm. or Effexor. Mm -hmm. Now that one has significant activity on norepinephrine and serotonin, um, and so when you affect serotonin. There are a lot of side effects that you can get from serotonin. You can get like palpitations. You yeah. can get uh, jittery from it. You can have sexual dysfunction, mm -hmm. right? So, so let's say you have sexual dysfunction, but you did really, really well on, on, on venlafaxine, right? So sexual dysfunction can either be decreased libido. It could be the inability to achieve an erection. It can be inability to have um, labeling engorgement. So what if my wife is just sick of my crap? Does that fit into that bin? 
well, yeah, and then and then <laughs> she's and, you know, sick and then of she, me personally. Then she can take then she can take an anxiolytic and have sex. So you know, <laughs> just, just chill out about it. Yeah, but, yeah, no. So, Poor yeah, thing. but 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 um. So in the case with venlafaxine, if if you wanted to keep the patients on venlafaxine, and let's say they couldn't achieve an erection, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. that might be from serotonin. So what you could do is you can give a drug like cipoheptadine, which mm -hmm. again does not have the indication for that, but cipoheptadine. Uh, blocks the blocks the serotonin, right? And so, um, and there's some there's some literature on using cipoheptadine um, in patients that have sexual dysfunction that are on serotonin type antidepressants. That's right. one example. Well, what else can you do? Well, let's say the patient has decreased libido, and they have uh, you know a problem with labial engorgement. All right. Mm -hmm. So, what are you going to do then? Well, maybe select a different drug that does not affect serotonin that affects only dopamine. And norepinephrine because dopamine, if you enhance dopamine, that actually increases libido, right? So a, a good example of an antidepressant that does that is bupropion. Um, bupropion uh, blocks reuptake of norepinephrine and dopamine, and so now you can treat the pain and libido at the same time. Uh, so, so or you or you can add a small dose of bupropion onto venlafaxine. So there's all kinds of choices. So, you know, that now we're just talking about um, you know antidepressants. What about opioids? Let's say a patient's on an opioid. And, and their most problematic um, issue is chronic opioid-induced constipation. Yep. And they've tried Senna, they've tried Docusate, they took Metamucil, which will make it likely make it worse because now you're forming a brick with that powder. Um, but whatever they've tried, they've increased, they've increased Senna and it worked, but now they're having an explosion. They're afraid to leave the house because mm -hmm. they don't know when it's going to happen. Well, one of the ways that you can treat that, if the chronic opioid is necessary, it could give the patient something called a Pomora which is periphery acting mu opioid receptor antagonist. Mm -hmm. um, so you give the patient that, and what it does is it blocks the receptors in the gut that are uptaken by the opioids. And it, it's not a laxative. It basically prevents the, the, op the opioid-induced problem, right? Um, so Relistor is one example of that, Movantic. Uh, um, so the, you know, there, there are strategies on, to on, manage on, it all. And, and you know what? Right. I, I, I'm hearing my patients saying as they're listening to this, I'm hearing them say, well, I don't want to have to take another drug for a drug. And that's the problem with the pharmaceutical industry is that I have to right. take a drug because I'm on a drug and then I need another drug for that drug and yada, yada, yada. And Absolutely. so, so what do you uh, think? What, yeah. what do you think about that? Well, so I think the first example I gave you in a patient that, that had side effects from venlafaxine, mm -hmm. the option is to take them off of venlafaxine and put them on bupropion, mm -hmm. right? In, in the case with the uh, opioid-induced constipation, um, you can either give them a drug that's, you know, try them on different opioids and see if they have less constipation, or you can take them off the opioid, you know, instead of adding, a, instead of adding another drug. Or you, can, or you can try, let's say they're on an around-the-clock opioid take them off the extended release opioid and put them on one more intermittently. And then when their levels drop, they won't have to have a, a bowel movement. Although that, you know, that's not a guarantee. So, you know, you, you can do that. You, you, let's say you put a patient, you have a patient on um, an anti-convulsant, uh, let's say pregabalin, and they're starting to feel like spacey. Well, that happens too. Well, you know what? Try them on a different anti-convulsant. There's all kinds. So there's, we talked about the gabapentinoids, which affect that, that calcium channel receptor, right? But there's other anticonvulsants like carbamazepine that might work, particularly for something like trigeminal neuralgia, uh, and that works completely differently. There, there are there's a, a drug called Gabatril, which blocks reuptake of uh, of um, of GABA mm -hmm. in, in the myeloid 
junction. So yes, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that you know rather than adding another drug uh, to treat the side effects of the first drug, it is better to, to hone in on what's actually causing the problem and select a different therapy that can get you the same benefit without the side effect, if it's possible. I mean, it's, you know, it's not always a, a, a plausible uh, option, but, but, but if it is, then that's what we should be doing. We should, right. we should change the drug. Uh, to, you know, to, to do what's best for the patient with as few drugs as possible. Right. And the, you know, then we hear this whole, you know, the, the natural products industry rises right up. See, we don't do that. Our stuff is natural and, and oh, yeah, we right. don't have to, yeah, exactly. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about natural products, but this kind of had me thinking, did you um, know Dr. Spore, the bio professor at Albany pharmacy by any chance? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> he was like one of those old school, like, I'm going to be a jerk, but you're going to learn something type bio professors. First day, you know, of college, first class is him. And he actually said to me something very funny. Obviously, it stuck with me because I remember it. He said that uh, there are three problems with drugs. One, they don't they don't work. <laughs> the, <laughs> the second is they're not good for you. And the third was they don't do one damn thing. So, you know, they don't work, meaning like they're not going to solve all of your problems. They are going to just do what they do. And then we interpret what that result is. The second one, they, um, they're no good for you. They all will have some sort of adverse event because they're not going to be able to just do that one perfect thing because the body is so complex. And the third is that they don't do one damn thing. Um, is is because they work on multiple body systems and that uh, causes all of these different side effects and, and issues. So you end up needing to manage those side effects using any individual drug. So I thought that was like a good knowledge that I got day one. And uh, it's kind of always stuck to me that, you know, drugs aren't these perfect things that, that, that solve all your problems in just one fell swoop. So the, uh, the thought here that I have it around uh, pain management, trying to, you know, again, let people understand how complex this is, but also know that there are options for them. So do, do you feel like we're still talking about neuropathy? Um, do you feel that there's any like topical things that people could use that you've heard people get relief that they could buy maybe over the counter? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's topical lidocaine, uh, which, which works, uh, extremely well. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's patches, there's, there's gel, mm -hmm. um, there's capsaicin, right? Capsaicin products. Um, they all work. They work in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, drugs that do topical drugs that do not work for neuropathy uh, are things like anti-inflammatories. Mm -hmm. They work well for other types of pain, but things like um, uh, salicylate uh, derivatives, aspirin, diclofenac gel, which is not over the counter, at least in this country, pretty much every other country it is. Um, you know, those things work for inflammatory issues, but not for neuropathy pain. But yeah, the lidocaine products and the very there's you know there's others that have other anesthetics in them uh they're available otc and and they work pretty darn well yeah but one thing i will question I, i've seen a lot i've seen um uh prescribers give patients lidocaine for things like shoulder pain mm. and, and knee pain yeah I'm not a fan of that. I'm like, you know what? There's no evidence to show this is getting into the joint. That's absurd. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, it isn't this thin little thing. It's like a seven layer kick and you got to really penetrate down and get into there. And, and it's probably all chewed up by the time it gets <laughs> near the joints. So, um, I have patients that are very gun shy about using OTC options for just basic pain. If they have fevers or chills during a cold or they have like some basic joint pain, they won't use acetaminophen or ibuprofen because they fear them. You know, what, what are your thoughts around the OTC options for people for pain? 
I think that the OTC options that you mentioned are fine as long as there's not comorbid conditions that would preclude their use. Meaning? So they're fine, but in a patient who has multiple medical problems, then they may not be so fine or on other medications, as you well know. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to take a patient that's got diabetes, mm -hmm. right? And so this is very common. Type 2 diabetic is not always, but usually is overweight. And so they're more apt to have osteoarthritis in their hips and their knees. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of person that might want to get an over-the-counter anti-inflammatory. Well, that's potentially problematic because those patients are also prone to nephropathy or kidney problems. Yep. And the NSAIDs are not good for the kidneys. Yep. You know, so there are potential problems. There's also a lot of drug interactions with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen and naproxen and also the aspirin and aspirin derivatives. So mm -hmm. there are certainly issues, but they're certainly safe to take intermittently. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no question about it. But you know, I would say that if we knew everything that we know about aspirin now, many, many years ago, it probably would only be available as a prescription. Right. I mean, because aspirin is, is a damn dangerous drug. Yeah, I was right? going to ask you that next question. Are you in the camp that says aspirin should only be a blood thinner? <laughs> or are you in the anti-inflammatory standpoint with it too? Well, I, so I, I do not believe we should be using aspirin at all to treat pain. Right. Uh, so acetaminophen does not have anti-inflammatory properties. Mm -hmm. right? It's not an NSAID. Um, and so that's okay for, for fever, um, and it's okay for pain that really doesn't, I mean, it, it could help inflammatory pain, but it's not going to reduce the inflammation. Mm -hmm. Well, aspirin, if you're taking aspirin, presumably you'd be taking it because it treats pain and reduces inflammation. But the truth is you need 12 to 16 tablets, 325 milligram tablets a day wow. to, to get any anti-inflammatory properties from aspirin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, years ago, this is before your time and before my time, mm. when aspirin was the only thing available, patients were told uh, by their doctors, start out with one tablet four times a day and increase by one tablet every day until you hear ringing in your ears. <laughs> and then, it's true. And then back down by one tablet. And that was their dose. I, I'm a, I don't know which elder in-law told me this, but one of them told me that they got sent home from an aspirin factory. All the workers got sent home with a big bag of aspirin every day. And pretty much every, it was just like in the, it was just ubiquitous, you know, <laughs> yeah. aspirin use insane. Yeah. And you know, we have the, the antique apothecary stuff in our store and we were just trying to kill people. I think back then, I think that was it. It's like, you're either going to have no symptoms or you're going to be dead. That <laughs> oh, right? Back in the day, back in the day, people were prescribed cocaine and strychnine. Right? I, I mean, right. I I mean, it, it was crazy what happened back then. So yeah. one of the things that you had mentioned is like, you know, the intermittent use of these things and the right dose. I feel like a lot of people are gun shy about making their medications higher dose, um, even though it may produce better results. The, you know, they, the idea of even using drugs for people is tough. And, you know, gabapentin, as you mentioned before, that drug, we used to call it the wonder drug. You wonder why they're using it, wonder what dose they're going to get or two, right? Uh, because you can get get thousands of milligrams of that drug and still not have the effect you need. So people are pretty gun shy. So when it comes to acetaminophen and ibuprofen, what I try to teach people is that it's okay to use it, not only use it, but use the proper dose. Like 200 milligrams of ibuprofen may not be nearly enough for somebody to get right. the results that they need. So, Absolutely. Yeah, and people are gun shy about that. So do you have any thoughts about the, um, the caps, the ceilings that people should be using? Because I know they did adjust the Tylenol recommendations. I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Yeah, so, so I'm going to tell you two things that might sound opposite. Okay. <laughs> so the one thing is that you should always take as little drug possible for the desired effect. I mean, there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. However, 
if you're going to take a subtherapeutic dose that has no chance of working, don't bother. Why put a chemical in your body if it's not the right dose, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, 200 milligrams of ibuprofen should not work for an adult, right? <laughs> 400 milligrams may or may not work. Maybe. Um, and for the average size adult, usually you need 600 milligrams, which is not consistent with the over-the-counter label. The over-the-counter label says two, two 200 milligram tablets. Mm-hmm. But you and I know that the prescription strength of ibuprofen have always been uh, three, right, 300, 400, 600, and 800, mm-hmm. right? Um, as far as the uh, gabapentin goes, you mentioned that, um, you know, they come in all sorts of strengths. They come in 100, 200, 300, 400, uh, 600, and, and 800. And the truth is most patients don't respond for neuropathies with gabapentin until they've reached about 3,600 milligrams a day or 24 to 3,600 milligrams a day. That's a huge dose. Yeah. But that's the dose that's needed. Now, if you're going to take 300 milligrams twice a day, don't bother. Unless you have kidney dysfunction and you can't clear out your body, it will accumulate and then you can get away with a, with a, a lower dose. So my message is, yes, we should use the lowest dose that's effective. Um, you know, and, and if you have the time to, to start lower doses, you know, something like ibuprofen low dose and it works for you, that's fine. Um, if you have no medical problems that preclude the use of ibuprofen and you just had a tooth extraction, well, for God's sake, you know, if you're a big person, take 400 to 600 milligrams and then back down on the dose, right? right? So you can prevent the inflammation. So it depends on what you're treating. It depends on whether it's acute or chronic. Um, but, but, uh, you know, it is variable from patient to patient also because they metabolize the drugs different right. and their weights are different. Right. So we were just talking about how you should be careful with ibuprofen, especially if you have diabetes and, and those kinds of things. And in our world, everybody is told to take turmeric. Everybody. Oh, yeah. It's a right. part of every regimen, you know, and besides the quality issues, which is my more my expertise, the idea of people are taking things that are working on the same anti-inflammatory pathways as our traditional NSAIDs are. Uh, is pretty wild to me. And the the I believe that the indiscriminate use of turmeric is going to be the next whoopsie moment for supplements. You know, we know that yeah. ibuprofen causes heart attacks now. You know, like using NSAIDs long-term, high dose, can increase your risk of myocardial infarction. So the idea of people using turmeric and just kind of set it and forget it is pretty crazy. Do you have any thoughts on turmeric and, and its place in the world? and Or is that something you've been kind of like shying away from? No, so I mean, I think that natural products like turmeric are... are are great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the problem is that that there's not consistency, oftentimes between products or sources. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what dose the patient is getting. Right. Um, but I, I think you know I think it's a it's a it's a great um, it's a great option. Um, I think conjoint sulfate is you know is, is good in, in patients. It takes about three months to start working. But these you know these natural products are fine. But we have to remember, as you mentioned. Oh, so they're natural products. It doesn't really matter. They're still affecting certain pathways. They're still right. affecting prostaglandins. And, and so we have to be very careful about that because of, you know, the potential for GI bleed. Right. And so, you know, you can't trick mother nature, right? So if, if you're going to be on chronic EDSEN therapy, you know, it's probably a good idea to be on something like omeprazole or PPI mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, there's good data that shows that lessens the risk of a GI bleed. Um, but GI bleed is, I mean, there's a lot of people that die every year from GI bleed related to NSAID therapy. Right. Uh, will it happen with turmeric? Well, probably nobody probably knows. 
I don't think it's ever been studied. Right, because it hasn't been studied, and um, it's not connected, and you're getting variable doses. We don't know really what, what's going on. But the point is, like you said, you're putting a chemical in your body. So there are two sides. One, take the right dose, and if you're taking the right dose, expect the right risks, as Dr. Spohr taught me but way back in biology. And then if you're not taking the right dose, don't take it because you're exposing yourself to a chemical, whether it's from a natural source or not. Right. So let's talk about the big one. Uh, we'll have to make this one quick. CBD. I know it's uh, one of your pet peeves, uh, multiple pet peeves for you. So what's your thoughts on the CBD uh, and its role in pain management? So I think there's not enough data to, to support its role in pain management. There's, there's some studies that are looking good for certain types of neuropathic pain. Um, I don't think that any healthcare professional should be advocating for the use of any of these um, cannabinoids, um, it's okay to use them, um, but we can't say this This is good for thus and such. Right. Um, I, I think that also, you know, we need to split the difference between THC and cannabidiol. Cannabidiol, as, as the listeners probably know, is legal, is, is legal in every state now. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I think that the role of the pharmacist is really, really very important here uh, because there is good data to show that cannabidiol um, does inhibit certain enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing other drugs, right. which means that depending on, right, depending on whether or not it's a pure product and the potency of that product could affect, could raise the blood levels of, of certain other drugs, which could be extremely dangerous. Um, well, the cannabidiols and THC have been shown to inhibit CYP2C9. Uh, one example of a 2C9 drug would be... Um, Celebrex, Celecoxib. So, you know, that could be dangerous if, that, if, if the levels of that went up. Um, uh, CYP1A2, uh, uh, we talked about fluvoxamine. Uh, the 3A, the 3A enzymes, 3A3 and 3A4 and 3A5 are inhibited by cannabidiol. Um, and of all the drugs that go through that system, uh, about 84 85% of them are affected by 3A4 and 3A5. So, right. There are drug interactions, and if you're a chronic user of either THC or cannabidiol, and then you abruptly stop it, then all of a sudden, the, your blood levels of your prescribed drugs can go down. Right. Right. So, so I, so a big pet peeve of mine is, you know, if you're going to take one of these products, you should stick with the same product. You should let your doctor and/or pharmacist know what's going on, so that your medications can be monitored. And and if you stop these products, you're on a drug that could be affected then you need to taper them so your other drug can be adjusted if it needs to be adjusted. That's, that's really very important. You're such a square. This is fun, <laughs> man. We're having fun out here with CBD. This is cool stuff. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, it's all good, but it needs to be done in a safe way. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the other big thing that I mentioned earlier on is that I get hundreds of emails a month and posts on my blog about patients who are taking CBD and are told that it's a pure product. They, they're on opioids, they go to their doctor, they have a urine drug screen, and all of a sudden it comes back positive for THC. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what? How could it be positive for THC? Now, if it's possible, it'd be positive, a false positive by immunoassay, right. but then they sent it out for quantification by, by mass spec chromatography, and it comes back and says, yep, there's THC in there. And the patient swears, no, I didn't use any THC. And then they get in an argument with their doctor, and it's like, you know what? They probably didn't use THC. But these, these products are not pure. Right? The, the law says you can sell CBD if it's 3% or less THC. Yeah, 0.3%. 0.3%, right? 0.3% or less. But a lot of them are more than 0.3%, and nobody's testing them. 
Right. Or, you know, just the concept that what 0.3% really means. That's 300 milligrams and 100 mLs. That's three right, milligrams that's, per milliliter. That's a lot. Yeah. Right. So if you right. end up getting a dilute product and you have to take multiple droppers full of something, now you're getting, you know, five milligrams of THC is a fun time, you know? And yeah, or, so. <laughs> right. Or look, at it, or look at it this way 300 mil. I mean, you, you and I know this because we live this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like 300 milligrams in about three ounces. Right. Three ounces is not that much. So if you're rubbing stuff all over your skin. Right. You know, you could easily absorb that 300 milligrams. That 300 milligrams does not go through a first pass in the liver now because right. it didn't go in your mouth. It goes right into your bloodstream. Right. Right. So there are there are there are issues. I, again, you know, I'm not against it, mm -hmm. but I think I, I you know, people are going to say, well, you know, Fuden is saying this because he wants to make money. Well, first of all, I'm not making any <laughs> money on it. That, that's number one. Number two is, you know, I, I don't really care one way or another whether the patients use these things. But if they use them, they need to do it in a safe way. Yeah. And I believe, I believe that there should be another class of drugs that's only available through a pharmacy and right. that there's mandated counseling. Right. Because, uh, again, I'm not opposed to these drugs, uh, but, but I, I feel like there's a lot of potential issues that at the very least the person should be counseled. Right. Because most people are buying them at gas stations and such. And I, and, you know, and this goes for all of this. So what do you think somebody is dealing with pain, whether it's, uh, you know, in their eyes, small or, you know, and acute or chronic and, uh, and it's been going on and it's severe. What is the best move for them to make sure that they're on the best track? What do you think people should be doing? Well, I think, uh, first of all, they should lead a healthy lifestyle. They should stay active. Yep. That's the most, that's the most important thing. Um, if they're going to seek medical attention and they see their family practice uh, provider, um, they, you know, if, if they are not getting better, things are getting worse and it's starting to affect their daily life. They shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be reluctant to see a behavior health person. Right. Because they could help them with healthy lifestyles. It doesn't mean they're crazy. Uh, maybe they'd be, maybe they would be crazy, you know, if, if they deal with all this stress without getting help, right. you know? So I think that, that number one, healthy lifestyle, uh, number two, you know, if you can't square away the, the, the issues with family practice, then you should consider uh, counseling. And if you feel like you're on a, you know, on a spinning wheel, then really you need to seek out a specialist. It, it gets to a point in time where the family practice um, provider, you know, it's over their head. They'll be the first one to tell you that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's too complex for me. And even if I could deal with it, I don't have the time to deal with it. Right. So let's get you into a, a, a practice. Now, one thing that, that's really kind of shameful is that a lot of pain specialists now, like board certified pain specialists, are, are not prescribing medications anymore. Right. Um, they're like, you know, we'll do interventions, we'll do implants. Most of them will prescribe medications if they're not opioids. Um, so a lot of the very complex patients are left with their family practice doctors, which again, you know, it's okay if, if they feel qualified to do it, but then there's the time constraint. So um, I, I think that patients really need to stay on top of it. They should read a lot. Um, they should they should maybe, you know, they, they shouldn't take it as gospel, but it wouldn't hurt to go into chat rooms and speak to other people who have similar situations um, because, you know, misery loves company, right? right? So, mm -hmm. so at least they can speak to other people that maybe uh, have some solutions or they can see what they did. Um, but, you know, keep open-minded and, and keep active. That's that's the most important thing. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Jeff, for coming on. I appreciate all of the expertise. And I, I think we kept it nerdy, but not too nerdy. So I think that's important <laughs> for me. It's all good.
Always a pleasure to have Dr. Jeffrey Feuden on the podcast. His expertise around pain is great, and we talked a lot about pain and managing pain. But as I said in the interview, I think it's important for you to hear what a pharmacist can know and how they can help doctors, nurses, patients all make better decisions on medication selection, right? Jeff's an example of an excellent clinical pharmacist that brings so much to the table. And if you can do it, I encourage you to seek out medical practices that utilize pharmacists like this. You know, as Jeff said, we pharmacists want you to take as few drugs as possible, but if a medicine is appropriate, we need you to get the best dose possible for you. And I would say the same goes to supplements. Only use the best made, properly dosed, right forms of the supplements that you actually need. Our conversation, Jeff and I, super nerdy. <laughs> I'm sure like lots of people were glossing over there. Even some of the doctors that listen, I'm sure they're like, whoa, that, that's a little bit much here. The MTHFR discussion really surprised me. It's so rare to hear when MTHFR and that kind of quackery or surrounding it can actually be clinically relevant. And it's awesome that his patient that he talked about had great results. But I don't want this to be conflated with the misinformation that is being purported. So proceed with caution around MTHFR as always. But I was glad that we got to kind of work through it and kind of talk about it. So, so now a special treat heroes, right? We all have them. And I believe that Dr. Jeff Fuden is a hero to pharmacists and to people that are undergoing abuse, that are a part of a fraudulent system that wanted people to do the right thing. So I'm going to let him tell his story about whistleblowing in our local VA. And I hope you find the story as fascinating as I do. So, okay. So this happened a long time ago. It started actually in the, uh, in the mid-90s. Um, I, at that time, worked in hematology and oncology as a clinical pharmacist in that specialty area, which, by the way, I did a fellowship in mm. uh, after I graduated from pharmacy school. And um, I, I saw some things that didn't seem quite right. Uh, there was patients that were receiving uh, unusual uh, drug combinations to treat certain kinds of cancers, or there was no evidence to support it. Uh, the proper things were not done in terms of, of informed consent. Um, data was being collected on patients. There was other studies that were company-sponsored studies that would require patients to qualify for those studies, uh, either, you know, either by kidney function or liver function or tumor size or all of the above, um, and they didn't qualify. Um, and I discovered that some of the data that was submitted to the drug companies was falsified. Mm. Uh, in order to qualify these patients. And then it was a lot of money to be had for every patient that qualified. So now, again, this was a long, was a long time ago. Um, and none of the people that I dealt with back then are, are around. Yeah. Uh, but but um, it, it was a problem. Um, I, was, I was harassed as a result of bringing this forward. You know, it involved, it involved multiple court cases. I was fired for a reason totally unrelated to any of this, which turned out to be a fictitious story that that was made up because they couldn't find anything i did wrong right uh it was it was pretty much a big uh, a very big uh nightmare back then i feel like there was more protection for whistleblowers uh, on the one hand this is when it first started with me but as it got into the early 2000s there was almost no protection for whistleblowers in the federal mm. government um and to me it seemed like a facade that you, know, you put it out there to workers and say you know there's all these policies in place, and, and uh, we, we protect the uh, whistleblowers, but there there wasn't. I can't really comment so much on how it is now, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, you know I want to make it very clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the, the VA or any federal agency. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just sharing what happened to me. You know, back in the uh, in the uh, mid '90s and early 2000s, it was pretty much a nightmare. But I will say this: at least our our VA locally and and on a national level, they changed the way that they do research within the VA. Now I don't know what happens at, at other places because I'm not there, but they are extremely strict now. You know, it would be very very difficult to get away with the things that happened back then because the VA changed the VA system changed their policy uh, and hold the veterans in high regard when it comes to to research they're, they're very very strict they also are very strict on, on who they hire because uh, back then there was also a, a medical doctor it wasn't a medical doctor he was posing as a medical doctor he had a card that said MD on it um, and uh, he was seeing patients he didn't even have a license to practice medicine Wow. That, so that was going. I, I didn't even. I didn't know that. <laughs> Just, right. I mean, you know, at the time. Uh, so there's a lot of shady stuff going on. But it, so the, one of the most disheartening things for me was that um, when I started bringing these things forward, and I, I was harassed by coworkers, by other pharmacists, by the doctors. No, the pharmacists. The pharmacists were phenomenal. In fact, oh, they were. Oh, they were. They were phenomenal. Uh, some were afraid to speak up because there was so much stuff going on, and they were afraid of being harassed. But uh, Tony Mariano was my my uh, boss at the time. Uh, he spoke up on my behalf. He was he was fired. He actually just retired. He worked in Hannaford for, for for many years, and he he retired from pharmacy. Um, but anyway, um, there was just a lot of stuff that went on. But the, like I was saying, that one of the most disheartening things is that so many federal agencies were involved. So at the beginning, uh, there was a huge cover up locally, regionally, and nationally. The inspector generals, uh, some of them were involved. Uh, there was some U.S. attorneys that were involved. Uh, I went to the congressman uh, who, you know, you know, it was basically at, the, at that time it was McNulty, you know, and he seemed supportive, but he really didn't do anything. Um, Hillary Clinton was the senator at the time. Uh, I never met with her. I met with some of her staffers. Uh, they, they, they wanted to take credit for some of the things that happened when, this, when it got straightened out, but they essentially did nothing. <laughs> um, I, the U.S. attorney's office, it was unbelievable. And because so many, even the FBI was involved. Wow. So, so because there were so many agencies um, that were either not helpful or were actually working in tandem with the VA, unbeknownst to me at the time, I finally had to go to the press. And eventually it was on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, I think it was 2000. I can't remember what year it was, but it, it, it's still in there. I mean, it's still online. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll link it so people can see it. Yeah, well, I can send you the article, but it, it is still there. Um, it, it, it was a nightmare. I mean, it was a real nightmare, but... Um, you persevered. I think mean, that's the big thing. I mean, you came to talk to us at school right as it resolved, because I was yep. in school as it was finishing up, and I ended up working wow. at the VA right after. And you came and talked to us, and, and the, the big lesson was that uh, it, it could have went away, and nobody would have known, uh, but you pushed. You know, and and because of that, you you made enemies with amongst jerks, of course. But you know, you did the right thing, and and to the rest of us, we we really look up to it. I think it's it's an important thing that people hear. So, well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Excellent story, excellent story. As Jeff says, his experiences were limited to that local VA. So again, we're not trying to say that all VAs are this horrible, corrupt thing, and they were doing this one thing. It was just a very local issue. 
the corruption has been addressed, of course, too. This is, you know, something that is now over a decade old. And as he said, you know, he's been there forever. And he said, like, everything is much better than it ever has been. And the changes that he helped implement because of his persistence and his strength are now throughout the whole VA system. So, you know, I, I think it's it's really great. And it's an interesting part of Jeff's story beyond his expertise of pain that uh, he actually was one of these people that, you know, in the news now we hear about lots of whistleblowers that are getting their their uh, their lives threatened and such. And, you know, he was one of these guys that was able to persist and, and win. So, so that's it for today's episode. If you want more Dr. Jeffrey Feuden, visit paindoctor.com, and that's P-A-I-N-D-R.com. Check out the show notes at woodstockvitamins.com for links to the articles about Jeff's bravery. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.